Greetings, race community. Brent coming in live with today's guest, Dr. Kirk Nooks, who serves as president of Gordon State College. Welcome, Dr. Nooks. Thank you so much, Brent. Happy to be here with you. Well, we haven't had a lot of college presidents on the Rays podcast yet, and we haven't had very much representation uh, of the um, part of the education market that you serve, if you will, and I'll let you share more about the Gordon State uh, history and mission. But before we get into that, I just have to share with our audience, we were at the Case District 3 conference in Atlanta a couple of months ago. And my colleague Molly uh, just came running up to me after hearing Dr. Nook's uh, talk, and she shared with our producer Lillian, "We've got to get Dr. Nook's on the podcast." So here we are. Thank you for joining us. And one of the questions I love to lead with is to just learn a little bit more about your own higher education journey. So take me back to junior year of high school. Who was that, Kirk? What was he into, and what led him to George Washington University? Wow. Well, Brett, uh, thank you again for having me on this podcast. You know, going back to to junior year of high school, uh, you you would meet uh, a Kirk Nooks who wasn't quite sure of what the next step was. Um, I was I was into things, trying out for athletic teams, but but not one of the students who would who would make the first string, so to speak. Uh, I I was into books, but again, not the 4.0 student. So I was just among the 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 group, you know, trying not to to stick out either way. Um, but I did know that I wanted to go on to college. My mother and my father they did not have the opportunity to to go to college, and they encouraged my brother and myself. And I, I knew something was there. So every now and then during the lunch period, believe it or not, I know it sounds weird, I would I would sort of steal away to the library. And I would hop on a computer and I would check out careers. And uh, those careers would would talk about how much money you could make, what what sort of degrees you needed, um, and the type of institutions you would be looking at. And I centered around biomedical engineering. And that's what I stayed with from junior year uh, upon senior year. Um, I was one of those students, again, applied to a number of institutions. Um, and Mercer University was the one who uh, accepted me. So I went off to Mercer to, to be a biomedical engineer. And then I ran into organic chemistry and it ran into me. Uh, it was the first F I ever received, uh, if you want to call it, in my life. Uh, and that woke me up. It said, well, maybe this is not what's cut out for you. I was getting ready to, to give up, uh, you know, and say, you know what, maybe I'll just leave this school of engineering, but it was engineering faculty members who had watched me and taken a liking to me and started to help me understand my strengths. And they encouraged me to pursue a new program of study, industrial management um, through the school of engineering. And that's when I said, okay, let me give it a try. And I could tell you, Brent, from, from there on out, I took off like a rocket, graduated, most outstanding student in my major. Uh, after that, went on to uh, grad school uh, for marketing. And that's where my first love of understanding marketing and advancement and, and what that could mean to tell a story and how you can connect with people. Uh, and then after that, went on to do some engineering work and had a wonderful time. But while I was serving as a, a project manager, 
it, it hit me that higher education is where I really wanted to be. That was one of my first loves. I went back to my undergraduate days and I said, you know, what would it be like to be back on a college campus? And in order to afford all of the opportunities available to me, I knew I needed to pursue a doctorate and um, jumped in with both feet. And that's how I applied to George Washington University. And they said, come on. And when I went in there, I, I went all in. I, I took a, a number of internships, a number of opportunities to, to see different facets of uh, the university and to understand the nuances of higher education and the power of how it can transform lives. And, um, and then upon graduation from the doctoral program, I had two offers, uh, one to go into full-time faculty work and the other to go into administrative work out of the office of the president. Um, and I chose the administrative route just because of the variety. So to speak. Dr. Nooks, let me let me just ask. And first of all, thank you for uh, the correction. I had the uh, order of events mixed up there, but starting at Mercer University uh, and then I, I want to know a little bit more about the time that you spent in the for profit world. Um, I, I know that you had sort of had that natural maybe path from the um, uh, industrial management work into some different sectors that, frankly, most of our audience, most of our uh, even higher education leaders haven't ever sort of gone down that path and then pivoted back in. And so just tell me more about your reflections, the specifics of those roles, and then ultimately what that maybe aha moment was that led you to sort of lead back, lean back towards higher education. Certainly. So, so the first role uh, was an employee benefits consulting firm. It's been about uh, three years there, and 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 that's working with you know health benefits and life insurance. Uh, many of our clients were higher education organizations. So, seeing it from that side, how is it you could help people to lead healthier lives and 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 package things in in terms of uh, affordability for organizations. Now, after that time, that's when I went to work at Robbins Air Force Base as a, as a contractor. Uh, I was for an organization called CACI, and we were uh, all focused on process improvement, time management studies. So that afforded me the opportunity to work on the F-15 Eagle, the C-130, the C-5 on a military base, and, and, and looking at how you can improve processes from um, an engineering perspective? How do you reduce the amount of time and waste uh, that could be a part of a process? Um, but but like you mentioned, it was one day I had a colleague who was on the team and he was going back for uh, an additional degree. And he came in and the next semester for me to sign off and approve. And, and I asked him, I said, why, why are you doing this? What are you interested in it. He says, well, I'd love to, to go back into higher education and, and teach. He said, that's been my lifelong dream. And he turned to me and said, well, what is your lifelong dream? And like I said, that's the day I started to think about it and say, wow, when I was in higher education, uh, I, I felt like I was making a huge impact. I was transforming lives. It was different. And I drove home that day and I said to my wife, uh, I said, what would you say if I wanted to go back in the higher ed and, and pursue that doctor. And she said, look, I, 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 I'd be with you. Let's, let's, let's go. So that's when I started to look at programs and, and that's where the story picked up with GW. So you do the work at GW, 
And it's clear that at that time you're aspiring for leadership, right? Uh, leadership roles. Correct. How explicit were you? I mean, did you have it written down like I want to be a college presence president someday? Or was it, you know, what were the goals at that time relative to, to where you've gone? The goal was simply, um, and I don't mean simply, but the goal was to become a faculty member at a research university. That that was the goal. That was, you know, how the program was identified, the research, you name it. I had a graduate research assistantship, was doing work with some of the finest uh, researchers. That was the goal. Um, there are annual conferences where you would present this research. And I, as a grad student, was afforded the opportunity to go to one. And I went in and I uh, was listening to a presentation from one of the scholars who wrote the textbook we were using, and I was excited, and I said, this is this is fantastic. Um, after his presentation, I went to another one, and it was a junior researcher. Uh, he uh, had presented his information. It was quite eloquent, uh, but then the hand started to go up, and as he started to, to, to take the questions, it it sounded like they were more critiquing his work, and they were they really beating them up and tearing down the research, and I said, wow, that was that was pretty rough. That was on call for. And I said, maybe it was this, this session. And I went to another session, same exact thing happened. And I started to ask myself, well, if we're all trying to do something better, this doesn't feel good. And I spoke with a mentor and she asked me, she said, Kirk, what is it you really want to do in life? And I said, I really want to make a difference. I want to see students' lives change. And she looked at me and she says, well, then you want to really be at an access institution, because that's where students' lives are really changed. And that's what opened up my mind to say, wow, an access institution. And I started to do the research. I took a few internships at local two-year institutions. And that's when my eyes were open, that as a, as a guy from Brooklyn, New York, a first-generation college-going student, that, that I, too, took classes at a community college during uh, my 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 undergraduate experience, and and that's where lives were changed. So I dedicated myself to the Access Institution, whether it's a state college like Gordon State or whether it was a community college uh, like I was in in Kansas City, because that's where students to me uh, have the the broadest potential for change and influence, and and I love to see their transformation. So give us the elevator pitch on just the place like in the market if you will for community colleges in the united states like why it matters what people who in our audience are going to skew towards four-year higher education fundraising should know about the community college system but maybe don't yet well i'm going to brent i'm gonna i'm gonna rephrase that as the the access institution because Thank you. Uh, what's happening over time is the community college uh, was known as the two-year college, but because of workforce demand, a number of community colleges are now offering four-year uh, degrees. They're, they're trying to be in line with the market need at an affordable rate. Uh, I think when you look at that demographic of student, those students have the, the some of the highest financial need. So when you're talking about advancement and fundraising, where your dollars will actually get to the students faster in a more meaningful way will be at the access institutions. These are the least resourced institutions 
with the highest potential for change and, and acceleration, if you want to call it, into the marketplace. So you will get the largest return on investment. You will see your dollars, if you want to call it, have more transformative effect. If you give one of these access institutions, I'm making it up, $100,000, you're going to see something magnificent happen. Uh, I, I love my R1s, but if you give them $100,000, many of them may say thank you, and it will go to their endowment. But for uh, an access institution, that is a transformational gift. And give people a point of reference around the cost, the value, the outcomes that you've seen in the access institutions, because uh, I think it sort of further underscores everything you just said about what it what it requires to make a material impact in the R1 landscape today versus what you can get done at what price point at Gordon State College, for example. Well, so at Gordon State College right now for uh, a full load tuition and fees, you're, you're talking about right about $2,500 a semester. So again, if, if you if you think about it, that's about $5,000 per year. Um, so, so you can really have a college education, 20000 20, you know, $20,000 for four years. Um, so if that gift comes in and um, let's just go with easy math for what it is. Um, if someone writes that that check, you can you can cover the cost of an education for a person full full board. Uh, for for a student to get a thousand dollar scholarship at Gordon State, that's that's essentially fifty percent of your tuition and fees for one semester. Again, a larger institution, you give a thousand dollar scholarship, and you still have an outstanding bill. So when you're talking about college debt and the fact that college debt right now is $1.3 trillion, the largest amount of debt in the United States of America, how do we ensure the next generation isn't saddled with debt? Um, we're teaching many of the same classes and some might argue, how can you afford to teach the classes uh, at such a reasonable rate? Well, it's because our faculty members are primarily focused about the teaching not mm -hmm. necessarily the research. And again, mm -hmm. I come out of the research experience, so I don't, I don't want anyone to misunderstand what I'm saying. But we're strongly and focused on the teaching, and that's where the value comes in. Small class sizes, so we get to know you one-on-one -on -one instead of being taught by a TA. You're likely taught with, by someone with that master's or that doctoral degree. Mm -hmm. Even at Gordon State College, about 90% of our faculty members hold a terminal degree. So you're getting people who understand students, who understand the material, and, and they just want to devote their life to service of teaching, not necessarily continuing to do um, research. Now, again, I want to be clear, research is needed. We need our R1s in a magnificent way to further research, to help us with a cure for different ailments or, or what have you, but there's also a role for teaching institutions. And so... Isn't part of the issue, though, given the relatively modest absolute dollar value of philanthropy that is supporting access institutions, community colleges, isn't part of the issue, A, that they've historically been more publicly funded, and then B, uh, there just hasn't been a tradition of philanthropy 
in the alumni context in the way that you might find elsewhere. Whereas if somebody, you know, goes to Emory and they graduate, they've heard about giving their whole time there. There's sort of an expectation of giving. Maybe they have family members that went there who've given. And so there's just sort of much, uh, just a much more stronger context for giving, but, you know, history for giving. But then also there's uh, a better understanding that that it's not publicly funded, recognizing that a lot of publicly funded institutions are less publicly funded today than they've ever been before, but it's still the quick, that's a publicly funded institution sort of narrative. You're spot on, Brent. So so those are the twin challenges. You know, one is the the decrease in state funding um, over the past, let's just say 15 to 20 years. You can you can look at charts, you can look at the data. Uh, even within the state of Georgia, uh, the, the amount of funding relative uh, to the power of the dollar has decreased. Not, not only that, um, if you look at tuition levels, uh, especially here in the state of Georgia, over the past several years, we have not really raised tuition to, to keep pace with inflation. In some cases, one or, or, or some may argue that we've had a tuition decrease because at one point, there were certain fees that were wrapped in uh, that were removed last year. So those, those students no longer have to, 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 to pay those fees. So hence, we don't receive those fees. And, and there's essentially a tuition uh, decrease. So because we're not keeping pace uh, with that level of investment, and we know our legislators are working extremely hard to, to identify how they may support us in different ways, the truth is, nationally, um, the investment in higher education has come into question. Some questioning, uh, if you'd like to go into higher education, you might want to find or pay your own way. Right. Um, you also mentioned the fact that uh, depending on how students are um, uh, supported by the, the culture of higher education, they may not be used to giving or understanding. They may transfer out early. And because of that, they did not develop their affinity to the institution. They developed their affinity to the place that they received their uh, degree. So sometimes that, that might be at a four-year institution. That's why it's important for access institutions like Gordon State to begin to, to help students understand that benefit. Because as we see more students graduate with a bachelor's degree, we can then begin to cultivate yeah. them and help them understand how to give back. But maybe the flip side, I mean... What about the argument of, you know what, Dr. Nooks, like it sounds good to build a culture of philanthropy and, you know, as more people get four-year degrees, tell them, hey, for $5,000, you can fund a student and you can create a fund a student program versus the flip side being, I would imagine the intersection of, of corporate engagement in your work has to be really important. I, I love looking and just seeing, hey, where are the alumni going from these institutions? And, and this isn't news to you, but alumni from Gordon State, for example, are going to Delta Airlines. And there's a bunch of alumni who've gone on to be flight attendants at Delta Airlines. And so how much of your job as a, as a college president in this access uh, part of, of, of the market is going and, meet, going and meeting Delta Airlines and saying, we are a feeder, even if whether there's a formal recruiting relationship or not, we are a feeder to your flight attendant program, which are in really high demand right now as everybody rebounds coming out of the pandemic. 
you might not even realize how many of your flight attendants went to Gordon State College. I can show you that. And I'd love to talk about creating a pipeline program where we can just be the conduit for people who want to become flight attendants at Delta Airlines, for example. I am spitballing this on the fly to all of my audience. So I <laughs> off base, but how do you balance like, let's go big with Delta versus let's try to create a culture of philanthropy? You're, you're spot on, Brent. You're kind of reading from my notes. So, so we have done that, not necessarily with Delta. Um, Middle Georgia University is about 30, 40 minutes away. If they see this, they'll beat me up. They'll say, look, how, how are you doing the aviation stuff? Because we're doing it. So, But in a practical and real way, we've got an outstanding nursing program. Our nursing program is well-recognized and well-known, not only throughout the region, but throughout the state. And what we did is exactly what you said. We went to a neighboring um, healthcare provider and said, look, we know nursing is the number one need in the state of Georgia. I just went to a presentation yesterday, nursing by far the, the, the largest number of vacancies. We need nurses. We want to help you produce the next generation of employees. Uh, so we teamed up with that health provider. We teamed up with a local K-12 school district. And we created a program partnership called the Community Innovation Partnership Program, wherein the students from the elementary, well, K through 12 would start at Gordon State as dual enrollment students. Uh, they would complete their associate's degree at the same time they complete uh, their high school diploma. They would then go on and finish up at Gordon State College with their bachelor's in nursing. But the entire time, the corporate partner, the healthcare partner, once they start in the dual enrollment program, they will give them an internship. Eventually, that internship rolls into a, a part-time job. And then upon, again, graduation uh, at Gordon State, they give them a permanent job. Now, in order to make that program work, we needed some scholarship dollars. We needed some additional resources to help the program go. That hospital wrote us a check for $100,000 to invest in Gordon State right. to get that program going. I love it. And, and, and what is that first year nursing uh, graduate that has sort of had this full pipeline experience? I mean, what, what are they earning? Can I, can I just ask what the kind of reasonable compensation range might be for a role like that? You know, if, if, if I were to guess, um, yeah. Because I don't have that data in front of me, I would guess they would be starting out mid fifties or, or even more. And so, when you think about everything you just shared, uh, starting early, ensuring that there's partnership with the high school. You mentioned dual enrollment. And I saw one of the videos you made about dual enrollment, which basically means I'm taking a math class in high school, and it's aligned with the Gordon State College curriculum, so I'm getting credit. Uh, I'm not physically going over to Gordon State or doing an online instruction, I'm doing my high school math class, but you all have partnered up. Tell me if I'm wrong because... because It's, it's actually the opposite. So they would come here. Instead of going to their high school math class, there you go. they will participate there. Okay. That was um, my mistake, but, but that makes sense. But the point being, they're not taking two math classes. That is correct. They're taking math. And so they've got a head start, essentially can graduate with the associate's degree. They've got this clear pathway. There's massive market demand for nursing. Basically a guaranteed $40,000, $50,000 job on the other end of it. And I would guess in a lot of cases for uh, 
a first-gen profile student that never might have imagined a path to 50,000 so early in their career, for example. So it sounds like an amazing fit with what the market needs. That is correct. Students need how you can be the conduit. Tell me about what is stopping kids from saying yes to that and choosing not to go to college, not to pursue an access uh, institution, for example, because it's got to be so close. I mean, you must every day see kids that just flip to yes or that just flip to no. And, and it's, I mean, it's really one of those like life-changing inflection points. It is. And, and, and when I reflect on it, um, I think it's all about communication. So, for example, when I came here five years ago, the, the market penetration rate for Gordon State College within this region was about 5% of the market. Uh, today, it's 11% of the market. Now, in order to get there, we had to communicate, again, getting into that advancement umbrella, we had to market and, and communicate the value proposition of a Gordon State College, that it wasn't less than, it was just different. Uh, it was more affordable. It was a smaller class size. And because, again, our faculty focus on the teaching enterprise, that's how we don't have the level of overhead of many of our R1 institutions. Now, in order to help students understand that, you also have to provide, if you want to call it, a level of the experience they were looking for. What do you mean, Kurt? Well, when I got here, students would say, Dr. Nooks, we'd love to have uh, more activities on campus. We'd love a football team. We'd love this. We'd love that. And we didn't have many of those things at the time. So they were correct. They would be able to go to another college campus with a friend and see more bells and whistles and say, hmm, I'm, I'm willing to pay more to get some of that. However, you fast forward five years. We not only have a football team, which, by the way, won its national championship three years into existence, uh, but we now have many of those programs and support mechanisms. We add Greek life next year. So all of the pieces to round out the student experience is coming, and students are flocking to us faster and, and, and making us their first choice because they see the value I want to know more about this because I feel like it's such a contrarian move at a time when people are cutting sports or making fun of the lazy river on campus. And that's why we've got a trillion dollars of student debt because it's gone to fund all these bells and whistles. And really, we need nurses. And so tell me more about the market insight that led you to say, look, I hear that. But our student profile wants a more holistic experience, and we've got to compete. It's just a really interesting sort of set of decisions that you've made at a, at a time that it might be a little counter to some of what you're hearing out there. Well, just like anything else, you, you've got to start with listening. And your student uh, body, uh, when you took a look at uh, the number of students who were transferring when I first got here, yeah. Um, it, it was it was a high transfer out rate, and I was able to to to, to grab a few of them, um, or grab those who were on the fence to ask why. So think about these many focus groups that students would share. Hey, 
all I do is sit in my residence hall during the weekend. I don't, I don't get out. I don't do it. I stream Netflix. Uh, or the students who are saying, yeah, I would love, you know, I, I watch my friends on social media and they're doing this at their college and I'm going to go there this weekend to, 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 to soak it in. Um, then you start to ask, um, well, why are you transferring? Well, I'm transferring because you don't have this particular academic program. I would stay because I love it here, but I, I want this four-year degree and yeah. you all don't offer it. So once you start to pull all of that together, you've got to begin asking the question, uh, what do we have the resources to accomplish? Yeah. And to, to what extent are we willing to invest understanding we're looking for a return on investment in terms of student success, in terms of retention, in terms, in terms of philanthropy? Uh, and, and when you put that together, then you test the ideas. So for example, I went to our foundation who, when I came, they had not been at 100% giving on the board. Mm. Um, uh, the faculty and staff for the annual campaign, we were at 30% participation rate. Um, uh, I could go on and on. Uh, but we, we put a compelling vision in front of them that we wanted to stabilize enrollment, that we wanted to become uh, first choice within the region, uh, and that we wanted to round out the experience for not only students who are here, but also for recent you know, graduates and other alumni who wanted to come back home. So one of the low hanging fruit, uh, have, a, have a homecoming celebration. We, we, didn't, we didn't have any homecoming celebration. We had a, an alumni group that would come back once a year for their 50th anniversary because we, we had that legacy, but there was no true homecoming. So recent grads weren't coming back. They weren't making that connection. So when it came time to give back, we were not top of mind. So we changed that and we had homecoming. And we created that opportunity for, again, those who were getting ready to graduate versus those who were uh, recently graduates to have a, a powerful, positive image of what Gordon meant to me outside the classroom. Because guess what? Those are where some of the connections come from. Uh, we started to build out more student programs uh, and activities so they didn't have to go and travel elsewhere. And students started to take pride. One of the things we did marketing-wise, we transitioned our older mascot, uh, which was a Viking, uh, into uh, what we call the Highlander stack. And we help students to understand and connect your story. I could tell you that spirit wear and apparel and, and just recognition has gone, you know, gangbusters since right. that time. Now, when you go out, you know, I saw a student of ours in the uh, airport just last week. And guess what she's wearing? A Gordon State College Highlanders t-shirt. Um, so, so again, these things are happening. At one point, I would go out to stores. I wouldn't see any apparel or spirit wear. And now we're seeing it all over the place. So it's just giving people a sense of belonging, a sense of connection, something that they could be proud of in order to make that connection, that yeah. linkage, develop so, that interest. Almost sounds like you're running a startup. I got to be honest. I like <laughs> um, but, but, you know, one thing you said really, really strikes me as being highly relevant for our advancement colleagues who are listening, which is it all starts with listening. And this idea that, you know, you're seeing a retention in a student experience problem. You see that in the data. 
Um, but then actually going out and grabbing people and saying, hey, will you talk to me about it? And, and you know, there's survey information we can do. There's there's one-on-one conversations. You can wrap that all together. And I think what, what we definitely are lacking on the fundraising side sometimes is, um, hey, you know, this donor gave 12 years in a row and then they stopped giving. And, and, and that will show up in like a report, you yep. know, a presentation and we'll have a donor count slide or retention stats. And I don't think we have a real system to go and say, hey, do we call them and ask why? You know, do we email them and say, hey, Dr. Nooks, you've given 12 years in a row. I noticed you didn't give last year. And I'd just love to learn more about why that is and what we might be able to do to make it right. I suspect over half the time it's going to be, I forgot, I was too busy, whatever, which is this whole other issue because um, that just means you didn't break through the noise to your point around communication. Uh, and then in other situations, it could be that there's a real, a real issue that they you know, that they feel needs to be addressed. But I, I don't think that we really, I just haven't heard a, enough instances of somebody sort of grabbing the donor and saying, hey, will you tell me more about why you stopped giving the same way you were just talking about with, with students that are that are moving on? Well, we, we actually did some of that when I first arrived. Um, and, and you're right, all the different categories you mentioned came up. There, there were some who, who stopped giving because of, um, if you want to call it misunderstandings or or, or some disconnect. Sure. We, we try to heal as much of that as possible. And, and in some cases we have, in other cases, we, we've not been able to do so. But the broadest category of people we ran into that, that stopped was because they did not feel that they were thanked appropriately. Uh, one example is uh, something we did today that we started about three or four years ago, the scholarship thank you lunch inviting all of the individuals who donated to scholarships to come and meet their scholarship recipient. So, so we've been growing this over the last three years or so, and it's just an opportunity to invite all of the donors, even if you can't make it. The fact that you know we wanted you back on campus so you could speak with the student who received your scholarship, the student goes ahead, gives his or her testimony, and the, the room is just full of, of goodwill and good emotion. That's, that's, that's one of the examples. The other piece for me is helping people to, to hear and feel and see and sense a compelling vision. We were able to do that. And now the end of the story, uh, we've got 100% giving on our foundation board. Uh, we've got uh, 80, over 80% of our faculty and staff participating. Every single year it's been on a high. Uh, we created something called the Day of Giving. Uh, which we started three years ago. And each year we're increasing the, the amount raised and exceeding goals. So we were able to launch our first ever campaign at Gordon State College. We've been able to raise over uh, $2 million over the last five years. We've, we've received the three largest gifts in the history of the foundation within the past five years. And we're cooking one up right now. And if it comes through, it again will take the, the, the notoriety of being the largest gift in the history of the foundation. So just giving people that compelling vision and story, helping them to connect to it and understand how they can become a part of it. That's what's worked for us here. It's a great summary, Dr. Nooks, and thank you for all of the background. And, and I think it's a good segue into the next part of our conversation, which is about five minutes after inviting Dr. Nooks to the podcast, uh, we learned 
that he had been appointed president and CEO for the Council on Occupational Education, which after this conversation does feel like such a mission aligned next step for you. I was looking into uh, just what is the Council on Occupational Education, who are the member uh, institutions, and it's it's sort of in that same space of 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 how do we be the bridge from uh, you know K twelve experience to a well paying job, uh, even if it's not the traditional four year residential experience all the time. So tell me about the uh, the organization and then uh, what inspired you to take take the the new new opportunity. Thanks. You know, Brent, the the Council on Occupational Education is a national accreditation. Uh, group that that really works in the workforce space, and as you mentioned, it it operates uh, in the in the two year space, but also the the non traditional space. So it actually accredits uh, you know uh, the the um, certain uh, military bases uh, and their educational uh, providers. It, it it has some work with the the White House, believe it or not, um, and their educational uh, items there as well as, you know, again, two-year institutions and, and for-profit institutions across 44 different states. Uh, their desire is to, to take this, this work of, uh, you know, workforce and, 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 and solution building and try to be the liaison and the bridge between all of them. Uh, the organization is one of about 64, if you want to call it, entities that works with the Department of Education to provide a stamp of quality uh, for academic programs, as well as uh, to provide access to federal financial aid. So uh, think about us as, as one of the, uh, the regional, if you want to look, accreditors that, that accredits many of these institutions. We just do it at a national scale. While is, why it's so critical to me at this time is because I've worked in so many different spaces. So I mentioned to you, I worked on a, on a military base before that. Uh, I did engineering work. Uh, I've worked in a higher education setting, not only at the four-year, but the two-year space. Uh, I've worked for uh, non-traditional, if you want to call it, entities. And, and the common theme throughout all of them is uh, the desire to, to meet a need in the community. And right now, the nation is in need of a stronger workforce. There are organizations like the Lumina Foundation and others that talk about the, the number of credentials that we need in the U.S. in order to remain competitive. And this is serious because the U.S. has taken a, a slight step back in, in the notion of credential production. Uh, so you've got a population of individuals who have some college but, but, but no credential. Uh, and you have a, the need for a number of jobs and, and, and they're looking for talented people. How do we get them put together? And the answer is not going to be everyone needs to go to a Gordon State College. It's not going to be the answer. Everyone needs to go to a Georgia Tech. It's going to be virtually impossible. So what we've got to do at COE is broaden the conversation to find out who are producing credentials. How can we uh, put the stamp of quality on these credentials? We're not talking about anything fly by night, but how do we how do we stamp this quality and how do we make these resources available to, to the people who are seeking them so they can get matched up with the workforce needs and we can do this as a nation? So I'm excited to lead that institution starting in late May as we have those conversations, which will include uh, different ways of funding. You know, there, there's this conversation now about short-term Pell or workforce Pell. 
will be uh, smack dab in the middle of that conversation of how can we access it? And how can we do so in a way that doesn't um, create a zero sum game? Meaning if a student accesses the short-term Pell now, they're not going to be penalized when they want to continue on their degree at a four-year institution. Those are the conversations we'll be engaged in. And the goal is not only to take this nationally, but, but worldwide as well. And just tell me about that space and also what you've experienced at Gordon State coming out of or, or in the midst of what is still a massive transition relating to remote work. You know, what are the implications of remote work? And then also, what are the implications for online education? And, and how do you see those things blending either in the occupational education space or uh, in, in your role at Gordon State? You know, remote work is essentially here to stay. You know, if there, if there, if there are a few things that came from the pandemic to, to make us stand up and say, wow, it's here and it's not going away, remote work is certainly one of them. It, it's forced us to, to understand that it is possible to conduct work and to get work accomplished in various settings. Now, the part and challenge for us is how do you do that in a balanced way? Because let's just say Gordon, for example, we still have students to serve, students are, who are on campus, so all of us cannot be in a remote work fashion. Uh, there are certain uh, um, departments within the institution that, that it doesn't even fit, our, our police force, our custodial, our grounds, those aren't telework positions. So, so it's causing us to rethink how we do this. In terms of online education, I could tell you there has been an increase in the desire uh, for online classes, and we have met that need. But at the same time, interestingly enough, we're hearing a number of our new students saying, I would like to be inside. Now, these are the students who largely during the pandemic guess what? They were at home during high school or what have you. So they're now craving the interaction with someone else. So the question for all of us is, what is the right balance of all of this? And what can we draw from? Uh, how can it create a stronger workforce? Because now you, if, if you're working in a telework environment, you don't have to necessarily come into work anymore. You can be in a different state as long as you're willing to uh, you know, work on the hours needed uh, and based on that time zone. So I think, again, for online, for telework, uh, it's going to cause us to rethink uh, the path we're taking. But the same thing could be say, said of artificial intelligence and, and this whole AI. How, how does chat GPT or, or DeepMind, how does that now influence the learning? You know, do we throw it out and say, do not use it? Or do we embrace certain parts of it and say, now this is, uh, this, this AI is changing this portion of the job. And how do we now, you know, um, use that to leverage the work we do? Now it's an exciting, uh, it's such an exciting moment. We're recording this on April, April 28th. And so by the time you listen to it, there'll probably be five new announcements that we can't even imagine yet. But um uh, you know, as we conclude here, thank you, first of all, for just sharing so much perspective in a space that we just need to learn more about. I, I'm really enjoying the conversation. Who do you learn from? I mean, who who are the thinkers? Who are driving strategy? I mean, you're, you're partly talking about 
you know, the intersection of, of business, you're talking about government, you're talking about philanthropy, you're talking about accreditation, like who are people we should know and follow in that, in that world? Wow. Um, good question. Um, I do believe when you're talking about accreditation, of course, being here in, in the SAC CLC uh, region, um, Bell Whelan and, and, and the group out of SACS, I, I believe they're, they're, they're doing some good accreditation work. They're, they're asking the right questions and institutions are struggling with it. For example, they're, 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 they're nudging this whole conversation on student success. How is it if, if your institution wants to be one that is described of, uh, of being a quality, how are you measuring student success? In what ways, how are you replicating it? And how are you pushing the institution to advance it? Um, prior you know, to that conversation, institutions would just say, we're, we're doing well, and that would be it. But how are you doing well and how are you demonstrating it with data? Uh, another piece they're asking us and, and, and having that conversation around is, is in terms of diversity, equity, and inclusion. You know, you would you would ask the question, and and I come at this from an economic workforce um, perspective. If we know we need more people, we need more talent. We cannot afford for anyone to be left behind or or not reach their full potential. If we know that based on resources, whether it be zip codes or backgrounds or what have you, that that certain individuals might need additional assistance or additional guidance. How are we investing in those areas? The same could be said of philanthropy. How are you investing or raising dollars philanthropically and aligning them to get to a certain um, level? Just like the hospital invested because they needed more nurses, they're not investing in our business school. They're not investing in our school of education. That hospital invested in our nurses because they need more nurses. So, so that would be a space. Higher education-wise, um, I think uh, Michael Crow is 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 you know one of the foremost thought leaders in higher education. They're they're always doing stuff out in Arizona that's causing us to think. Um, I think uh, Sorrell out in uh, Texas uh, is is doing some good work out there and and causing us to to rethink about how the institution uh, could be used to to transform not only the campus, but the, the community. I think organizations like ASCU, which I'm a part of, uh, the American Association for State Colleges and Universities, Dr. Uh, Millie Garcia is the CEO, is, is uh, they're pushing organizations. Uh, we just finished up uh, a, a product called uh, the Stewardship of Place, and people can download that monograph. And, and when you read through that monograph, it's asking the question, how are institutions uh, bringing value to the region in which they serve? Mm. Not being an island unto themselves, not doing research for research's sake, but actually helping to transform the region and solve challenges of the region. Yeah. So that's why, again, that, that CIPP program is, is so meaningful to us. And we not only did it with nursing, but we're doing it as well with teacher education with our Parapro to teacher program. Again, we know there is a need for teachers because of the massive level of retirements due to COVID, what are we doing with the resources we have to solve those challenges within society? 
Well, thank you so much for sharing your journey and perspective. And we're going to conclude on a fun note. Tell us about this Italian cream cake recipe that you're known for. And, and you don't got to give us the recipe, but why should everybody here at least give it a shot? You know, the, the Italian cream cake uh, is something that is near and dear to my heart. Long story short, uh, I took a, a trip with my wife to her hometown and uh, she had a family friend who, who bakes. And uh, one of the things she wanted to do was bake for us before we left. Well, she baked the cake and we got it in the car. We were driving uh, back and my wife said, hey, have you have you tasted the cake? And I said, no, I'm not I'm not into the cake. And she said, you got to taste the cake. And I tasted the cake and it changed my life. I've never tasted a cake like that. And I said, my goal in life is to perfect the Italian cream cake. So I went on, I, I took down a recipe. I started to tinker with it over a few years and I perfected it. Uh, I can say, and I can brag, we had the, the bake-off on campus, a blind taste test. And guess who came in first? So, so every holiday season, I, I take out the recipe and I make it for campus and, and everyone usually enjoys it and and others come by to ask me about it but it, that's the italian cream cake story well we met dr nooks because he was being honored with the chief executive leadership award at case district three but it sounds like the blind taste test uh competition on campus uh rivals the the honor <laughs> there. indeed indeed i love it well thank you so much dr nooks uh best wishes on your next chapter, we look forward to staying in touch and I hope you have uh, really a terrific weekend. Everybody, thanks for listening. I'm Brent Grinna, founder and CEO at Evertrue, signing off for this episode of the Rays podcast with Dr. Kirk Nooks, who serves as president of Gordon State College. Take care, everybody. Thanks so much, Brent.